Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And, and if you haven't already done that, you probably need to examine your other life choices as well. It's April 6th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. Joined today by the Weekly Standards, Mark Hemingway and Mike Warren. Happy Friday, gentlemen. Hey, Charlie. <laughs> Glad to be here. Well, as usual, we've got a lot on the plate. The uh, Trump administration slapped some major sanctions on some of Vladimir Putin's closest friends. we got some kind of so-so job numbers. President uh, um, wants to withdraw from Syria, but he doesn't want a timeline. Uh, Scott Pruitt's time in the barrel seems to have been extended, and we have what looks like an escalating trade war. So I want to start with the breaking news this morning, though, about these uh, Russian sanctions. Uh, Mike Warren, I know you were on the the conference call. Give me your sense about uh, whether or not uh, this is a a hard enough slap that Vladimir Putin's going to feel it. It seems to be. I mean, uh, if it is hitting 38, as the administration said, 38 Russian individuals or entities, um, and you know that that included uh, seven oligarchs and a number of um, uh, a number of other influential uh, you know, chairmen of this company or that company. Well, if you're in any position of power in, in the economy or certainly in the government uh, in Russia, you have close ties to Vladimir Putin. So this is hitting some very uh, close people, including Oleg Deripaska, who's sort of uh, uh, the oligarch in chief, uh, right, uh, very close ties with Vladimir Putin. One of uh, Putin's uh, recently made ex-sons-in-law, um, uh, who's, who's a businessman of some kind, also getting hit by sanctions. A bunch of people and a couple of companies, um, a, a weapons training company that's owned by the Russian government, all getting hit with sanctions that the administration says – uh, the, the the process has been in process for several months and is basically in reaction to a bunch of uh, Russian bad acting, whether it's the 2016 election, uh, which they did cite uh, all the way to back to Russian incursion into Crimea and the sort of disruption of of the uh, order in Western and, and the rest of Europe, um, even even into Syria and, and the sort of Russian propping up, as, they, as the administration put it, propping up of the Assad regime. So this is big, it's sweeping, and it seems to be coming from a position from the administration of hitting Russia over just about uh, all the bad stuff that they seem to be doing these days. Yeah, well, Mark, give, give me some sense of this, the cognitive dissonance that we get out of the administration, because, of course, you still have the president uh, who may or may not be meeting with Vladimir Putin at the White House, who's been reluctant to criticize him. But in terms of the actual substance of administration policy, they, they are actually very tough on Russia. So uh, give me some sense about how we should read these mixed signals. <laughs> well, you know, it is hard to say uh, exactly what they, you know, but what Trump himself, you know, thinks about anything, much less Putin, you know, certainly he has, you know, engaged in a lot of sort of conciliatory rhetoric, you know, even, you know, favorable things about Putin. He said that, you know, I, I think most people would consider, you know, inadvisable. But having said that, uh, I, I think that there is uh, frustration from within uh, the administration and, and even without the administration from Trump supporters over you have an administration that whatever Trump's, you know, campaign rhetoric or things that he said about Putin, objectively on just about every level he as president of the United States, has been far tougher on Russia than uh, um, either of his two you know, predecessors. 
Um, and Although that wasn't a difficult task. That was sort of a low bar, but you're, you're right. I mean, it was, it, the Obama administration was so sort of soft on Russia that um, even the littlest thing, which this is not, right. is tough, on, is but, tough but, on Russia. But there were lots of things that you'd think would have been like no-brainers, like the, the Poland missile defense and, and other things like that, right. um, that you know Trump did and Obama refused to do. I mean, a lot of this has to do, frankly, with the Iran deal, which was the overarching foreign policy goal of the Obama administration basically since day one. And that involved you know placating um, you know, uh, um, Russia because Russia's you know, close allies with, with Iran in a lot of ways. So... Um, you know, I don't know what to say other than, uh, you know, as far as, you know, politics go, actions tend to speak louder than words. And I think we're getting to the point where we might start have to g- giving the Trump administration, uh, if not Trump himself, the benefit of the doubt on, on this Russia stuff. Well, that is the interesting thing about the Trump administration. Normally, actions speak louder than words. But with this president, the words often speak louder than the actions. And and that's why it, it's difficult. Now, speaking of foreign policy, we haven't really talked on, on this podcast about the policy on Syria. There's a story in the Associated Press today about the apparently the rather tense meeting with his national security advisors after you know, Trump had publicly suggested that we were going to be pulling out of Syria. And uh, you know, the, the account, you know, they're huddling in the situation room. The, the story says the president was vocal and vehement in assisting the withdrawal be completed quickly, if not immediately, according to five officials briefed on the meeting. Um, if those aides failed in obtaining their desired outcome, it may have been because a strategy that's worked in the past, giving Trump an offer he can't refuse, appears to have backfired. Rather than offering the president a menu of pullout plans, they basically said, look, um, you either stay in Syria to assure that the Islamic State can't regroup or you pull out completely. And apparently, you know, Trump, um, you know, is basically saying, I, I, I want I want out. And he, he's, uh, there's real tension there between uh, the entire national security staff and the president of the United States. So apparently he is he's committed to getting out. But he's telling folks, don't tell the world that we have a timetable. So. Mike Warren, where are we at here? And again, this relates to the Russia uh, story because, of course, an immediate pullout from Syria and withdrawal of all aid would be a huge win for Iran and Russia, wouldn't it? Yes, and I I will say that AP story is uh, very accurate based on what I've heard. They they were much better sourced than I am, but um, everything tracks with what I heard about that particular meeting and sort of about the dynamics between the National Security Council, which, remember, is – a lot of different people throughout the administration. It's not just uh, the national security uh, uh, advisor and his aides in the White House, uh, but it's also uh, the secretary of state who is now there's currently an acting secretary of state. Um, the CIA director uh, who happens to be uh, next in line to uh, is the appointee for secretary of state, secretary of energy. There's a secretary of the treasury. There's a lot of um, advisors uh, and, and cabinet officials who, who are in there, obviously the secretary of, of defense Um and uh, joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they were all recommending um, essentially that, you e- yes, you either need to completely pull out uh, or um, you cannot sort of put a um, uh, put an end goal in the time frame that the president wants, which is within six months or so, um, because you, because despite a lot of gains and big, big gains that have been made under this administration against the fight against ISIS, they're simply not 
the 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 uh, reports of their demise have been greatly exaggerated. You talk to people who who know a thing or two about what's going on over there, um, and you essentially have a bunch of cells within um, you know the the uh, far far eastern Syria and in Iraq that uh, that really at any moment could be um, uh, could be activated. Uh, and 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 the fear from the national security advisors is that a complete American withdrawal will essentially be a green light to those cells to. Uh, come out from uh, from the shadows, come out from the cold, uh, and 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 back into the fight. Uh, and you you raise a good point there, Charlie. There is also this this fear, which I think has already been realized in many ways, which is this part of the world has been ceded in terms of being a, a, an area of influence to the Russians and to the Iranians. And you know, we talked about these actions against Russia for propping up the Assad regime. Uh, well, um, and, and those are, I think are good and important. Uh, but pulling out of Syria is something that the national security team is very concerned about. Will only uh, elevate Russia's uh, role in that region. But the president views this as uh, a, he wants to get out. And that's the decision. He, had, uh, he sort of called their bluff and said, that's what we're going to do. So there is a bit of a stalemate about where not, what the not, timeline not on here. The same page, that's right. That's right. And, and that's that's odd, I, I would say. All right. I, I, have a, I have a pointed question I want to get to about Scott Pruitt, but I also just want to get some sense of, of where we are at here. The big headline in The Washington Post is Scott Pruitt's job in jeopardy amid expanding ethics issues. Wall Street Journal editorial comes out and says the president has to show uh, loyalty to Scott Pruitt. So, Mark, give me your sense of the, you know, w- w- why Scott Pruitt right now um, is the guy twisting in the wind and, and how you, you think it's going to play out. Well, I think yes, it's going to play out. (laughs) Nobody knows. I think unless we get more dramatic revelations than we've gotten so far, I think Scott Pruitt is going to probably survive this. Um, the fact of the matter is he's been a very effective uh, policy advocate for the president's agenda um, and certainly more so than a lot of cabinet secretaries on, on a lot of issues that are very important to you know Trump's supporters and, and voters. And, and I think Trump recognizes that. Um, um, further, you know, you know, any Republican EPA secretary, let alone one that's actually going to go out there and try and do something uh, specifically to, you know, counter the ambitious plans of, of you know, sort of left-leaning environmentalists, is going to have knives drawn from him uh, out for him, you know, from day one. And I, I think that was the case with Scott Pruitt. Um, I, it's you know, it's entirely possible, and I've heard a lot of things. There might be some, you know, personality clashes behind the scenes. You know, pr- obviously one reason why Pruitt's an effective guy is he's also sort of a hard-charging guy, and that can you know rub people within the administration the, the wrong way as well. But if you actually look at his proposed crimes here, like. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I wouldn't endorse any of these things. But, you know, compared to, say, the travel budget of Gina McCarthy or, you know, um, um, Obama's you know, last EPA secretary or his first EPA secretary, Lisa Jackson, who had that scandal involving fake email addresses and coordinating with oh, yeah. outside you know, liberal activists and things like this, those scandals didn't get nearly the coverage that uh, uh, and pressure being applied um, that is being applied to Pruitt. You know, even with the even with the outrageous salary increases. The, the total salaries, even after the $56,000 raise or whatever, is still kind of within line of what people in the federal government are being paid these days, which is not to say it's not outrageous that people are getting paid that much. <laughs> um, but the, the issue is not whether or not I think Scott Pruitt is an egregious cabinet secretary um, in terms of how much money he's spending or you know, some of the things that he's doing, you know, his relationships with lobbyists. 
Uh, the issue, I think, is that this is what being a cabinet secretary has become, and and that in and of itself is 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 a shame. But the idea that that uh, Scott Pruitt would be a sacrificial lamb for this right now, I think, strains a little bit of credibility. Well, you know, that's interestingly enough. I, I made that prediction the other night that I thought he was likely to survive for exactly the reasons that you said. Because, you know, he, he his agenda is so crucial to the president's agenda. He has been effective and he does have the support of much of the base. On the other hand, you, you do have this drip, drip, drip of, of of stories about, you know, you know, now asking for what, you know, lights and sirens. And, uh, you know, one of it, one of his aides you know, said we can't do that. And they're transferred uh, the, the raises. Um, his incredibly poor performance with Ed Henry. I mean, if, if this was really nothing, he would have, uh, I, I think he would have, you know, he would have done better uh, in that question and answer. And I guess the question that I have is, and, and, and I do think I, 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 look, I mean, there's a narrative right now in Washington um, about the swamp and the swamp getting swampier. He's not the only cabinet secretary who appears to have uh, believed that uh, he could, uh, you know, fly first class and do a variety of other things. But I guess the question that I'd, I'd ask you, Michael, is Scott Pruitt is, you know, didn't just fall off the turnip truck. He's a former attorney general. He's been around for a long time. How could he have been so, should we say naive? I was going to say dumb. How could he be so naive as not to know that this kind of behavior would come back to bite him in the current environment? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll answer that in a second, Charlie. I, I, I do want to say that the added element to what Mark just described in terms of why the knives are out for uh, for Pruitt is there seems to be, and I can't, I've been trying to report this and I can't figure it out. There seems to be an element within the white house itself mm-hmm. that, uh, that is, has, sort of has, has it out for Pruitt as well. I've heard that as yeah, well. And yeah. that, and that is Ooh. something I don't know. Uh, I, I think, I think there, I think it is a sort of a longstanding thing. I think, uh, Kelly, uh, at least this week, John Kelly, the chief of staff has been frustrated with Pruitt's sort of uh, efforts through the conservative media to kind of uh, keep his job and, and promote himself to the president. But um, I think there's something longstanding there, and I can't put my finger quite on what it is. Um, but uh, but to your question about why does why, why yeah Pruitt, former attorney general of uh, of the state of Oklahoma, um, some say he has designs to be you know governor or something else uh, down the line. He he ought to know better about some of these sort of minor um, but but really bad headline drawing picadillos. Um, and I th- and I, I don't want to minimize Pruitt in the in the Pruitt EPA's sort of uh, culpability here, but you do have to look to the top. And there is a sense um, you take this this issue with the with the raises that he got for these two aides. Um, supposedly the PPO, the the Presidential Personnel Office, um, was uh, did not approve of them. Well, there was a story in the Washington Post last week about basically how the, the PPO is understaffed and being run by a bunch of 25-year-olds. That sort of the grown-ups at the office left very soon after the administration for various reasons. Um, and there's this kind of culture within the administration where um, everybody seems to uh, get the sense from the top, and I think this comes all the way from the president, that uh, you just kind of do what you got to do to get through the day or, uh, or you know, the, the rules are sort of meant to be guidelines and not necessarily things you have to follow. Um, and I think there that culture permeates. Again, that doesn't take away 
from any of these cabinet secretaries their um, their culpability on this. But I think it's a cultural thing within the administration um, that uh, that that's that has sort of permeated through. Um, and uh, the president himself does not like these headlines, does not like the idea that the swamp continues. But um, I think that the, the sort of chaos within the White House um, contributes to this as well. And people just kind of feel like it's the Wild West out there. Yeah, I want to switch to now to the the economy into the into the into the midterms. Uh, yesterday, the president was uh, it was supposed to be a roundtable about tax reform down in West Virginia. Is that right? I mean, that's the way it was was billed right. for uh, the you know the, the the president to tout the Republicans' big win, and this is how this is how President Trump began his presentation by taking his talking points or his remarks on tax reform, which was supposed to be what the whole thing was about, and saying that it was boring and actually just throwing it away. And here, here's, here's the president. And uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be looking at that as soon as we get back. And I think with that, I'll start. You know, this was going to be my remarks. It would have taken about two minutes, but that would have been a little boring. A little boring. No, I'm reading off the first paragraph. I said, this is boring. Come on, we have, to, we have to say, tell it like it is, that we have to get Republicans in office. Now, okay, that was one of the, the Trumpiest of, of, of Trump moments, <laughs> because if you're a Republican, this is exactly what you want the, the president to talk about. Not going back to the Mexican rapists, not going back to the millions of people who voted, uh, who voted illegally. And I'm looking at my email box right now, and, and here's, here's, the, uh, here's what I got from Speaker Paul Ryan's office. Tax reform continues to bring U.S. businesses home. One of the positive impacts from tax reform is businesses coming back to America, meaning more jobs and more opportunities for working families, etc. So here you have the Republican speaker very, very much on message. But the Republican president does not want to talk about arguably the best talking point that Republicans have. I would think that congressional Republicans were pounding their faces on desks yesterday as a result. of that. So how is that different from any other day, Charlie? Uh, I mean, for for congressional Republicans. No, I agree, I agree with you that uh, but but this is part of Trump's appeal and sort of part of Trump's own political persona, which is that he literally does throw the script away or figuratively and, and yesterday literally throws the script away and talks about the things that interest him and makes makes it interesting. I think the difference between the 2016 election and now is that there's a lot more sort of uh, there are a lot of other people and sort of institutions and the party's sort of uh, uh, the, the, the party's own fortunes that are kind of tied up with what the president does. Um, and and so, uh, you know, the, the, now, you know, he's doing things that maybe worked for him, but maybe they only work for him and well, they yeah, don't and that, they don't work when he's not on the ballot. You know, we, we talk about the president appealing to his base, but Mark, I mean, he's acting as if his base is is Lou Dobbs, Sean Hannity, and Ann <laughs> Coulter. And if you look at the what he, what has to happen between now and November, you're going to have to get a much larger base, both among Republicans and among independents. And I just want, want to get your sense on this: is is the that that symbolic moment of taking the best issue Republicans have, I would argue, and throwing it over your shoulder? Um, I, I you know, right again. You know, 
not terribly constructive. No, if, you, if you're a Republican, you want to and you want to keep control of Congress. Right. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and it would help to have some sort of across the board message discipline. But I think everyone is aware at this point in time that that is not <laughs> going to happen. It's just simply not on the table. Now, having said that, I think that there's a lot of lessons that congressional Republicans should be learning from Trump on this sort of thing, which is to say that, um, you know, I learned this a lot over Obamacare and I wrote tons of, you know, detailed, thoughtful pieces on how the health care law worked. And there's literally no elections that are ever going to be won by me explaining how the independent payment advisory board uh, in Obamacare, you know, is a Tenth Amendment violation and it's going to cause all hey, sorts of problems I, I on the road. Your stuff on iPad was 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 riveting. <laughs> I, I, I took notes. <laughs> your check is in the mail, Mark. It was, it was important journalism and uh, subscribers <laughs> to the Weekly Standard. Uh, um, anyway. Um, Yes, but but anyway, the point is is that's that's not how the debate over Obamacare is is won or lost. It's it's you know it's won over it's government health care that's going to ruin your life versus it's free health care that's going to improve your life. Um, and Trump seemed to grasp at things you know for voters in this country, and this may be a reflection of the fact that as ever the problem is us. Um, <laughs> that you know the debate in this country has been dumbed down sufficiently such that people aren't interested in having sort of sustained debates. And I think that this was a over over detailed issues, and I think that this was a lie that Washington told itself um, because it was self. Uh, self-glorifying for a long, long time, and I think that illusion has been shattered. So, you know, I think that Republicans need to find a way to sort of, you know, sort of get in the slipstream of Trump. What? Dumb themselves down? Yes. It's (laughs) our fault because we actually make arguments that are based on truth that deal with policy. Well, I'm not disagreeing with you because I, I do think that this is one of the mistakes that we have made about politics, which is to think that politics is about achievement, it's about ideas, when in fact it's about attitude, tribal loyalty, these these broad strokes right. that are out there. But well, um, let, let, Charlie, let me um, push a little bit on this idea because I think that uh, sort of in this narrow instance, I think the president kind of has this general sense that tax reform really isn't him and really isn't his issue. You know, he obviously signed the bill, um, but I think he's he's feeling a little bit. Um, that that he needs uh, an issue of his own to be pushing out there, and what okay, issue so better than immigration? To, okay, well, or the fact that we are looks like we're we're seeing a, a trade war. So, let me get your sense about this. Larry Kudlow, who's I think probably is going to dawn on him, this is a much tougher job than he thought, was out yesterday saying, "Now, don't don't freak out about this uh, the, the trade war. These are just proposals, and he wants to calm the markets down." The markets apparently were listening to Larry Kudlow and decided to not overreact to the latest tit-for-tat uh, uh, tariffs. And then late last night, we get the report that the Trump administration, that Trump is is now talking about the possibility of escalating it to $100 billion in tariffs, taxes, consumer taxes on Chinese products. This morning, the Chinese basically sounding like they're going to fight back. So, you know, again, rather than talking about tax reform and shrinking the government and everything, we are now talking about massive new taxes and the possibility of a trade war. So, so if you're Larry Kudlow, what do you say today? <laughs> he, he still doesn't mean it. He's trying to figure that out as we as we talk right now, Charlie. What what to say? Well, I, I think with the, the tariffs thing, there's, there's sort of an interesting thing going on here, which is to say that while I think trade wars are awful, you know, they're, they're a tax on the people, you know, um, tariffs, that's what tariffs are. And, and I think that on, on a lot of levels, people in the know understand that and are sort of terrified by the consequences of, of getting into a trade war. Having said that, there's also this huge problem, which is that, um, you know, China is a bad actor in the international market and has been for yes. a very long time. I mean, you know, going back to, you know, I don't know if you remember what the political moment was like just after Tiananmen Square. 
square. I mean, there were reams of pages read in the congressional record of congressmen denouncing China's atro- atrocious behavior. Um, Bill Clinton campaigned against the butchers of Beijing in 1992. And what happened? Did anyone ever hold China accountable for any of the things that they were doing in terms of human rights violations? No. The response was, well, if we make them full partners in the international community, we give them most favored nation trade status and other things like that. They will become wealthier and freer and they will just you know, slipstream into the, the mainstream and shed communism and everything will be great. That has not happened. Um, instead, they have basically taken advantage of us at every step of the way. They're you know, robbing us blind when it comes to intellectual property and other, a lot of other significant issues. So do I think tariffs are the best way to address this? Um, no, I'm mildly terrified by the prospect of a trade war with China. But it's also true that I think that Americans – um, broadly sense that we have to do something about China, which is being aggressive militarily and is, you know, stealing our lunch economically. So, you know, people are, are I think, on some level happy that Trump is doing something and that's giving Trump a little more space with this sort of, you know, tariff thing with people hoping, you know, maybe too optimistically that this is actually a sort of salvo in some kind of, you know, negotiation toward a, a, a fairer, you know, trade deal with China. But, but I, I would yeah. say, having uh, written a little bit about um, Peter Navarro, who is the Trump uh, uh, Trump trade advisor, chief trade advisor, um, who has been sort of banging the, the drum on China for uh, about a decade or more, um, and pointing out uh, both, I think, what uh, Mark, you just touched on a sort of the, all the bad act acting by China since the uh, since the, the the country joined the WTO, but also has been very very much um, believes that tariffs are the way uh, to sort of bring China to heel on this. He is he is very much influential or sort of part and parcel with Trump. Um, they're, they're simpatico on this idea that that tariffs are the way to do this, um, and um, I, I think that what what Larry Kudlow is finding is that sort of his uh, desire to sort of uh, uh, curb that 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 impulse by by President Trump is is not really working um, because Larry Kudlow is a free trader. Larry Kudlow sort of um, I think has spoken favorably about uh, doing things about currency man- manipulation um, and and trying to go after intellectual property theft. Um, but what he's finding is I think is that Trump sort of instinctively and in, in a very full way has a worldview about the use of tariffs and trade wars um, to to sort of bring uh, countries that he believes are are, are screwing us um, to heal. And that's that's very difficult. Trump doesn't have a lot of very fully formed views on a lot of policy issues. But on this issue, he is he does, fully yeah. formed and he is, I think, committed. And anybody who thinks that he, you know, like Larry Kudlow, who thinks, well, he doesn't really believe this. No, I'm just really only fully themselves. Well, well but he, he does believe this. And, and you know, again, I guess I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we should do something about China, particularly intellectual property. But uh this strikes me as a as a very very dangerous idea, and I will tell you the the anxiety in uh, rural America, agricultural right. a lot of the agricultural community, you know, that voted for for Trump is is very high. I mean, here in Wisconsin, I was uh, I think I was I mentioned uh, yesterday I was in one of the TV newsrooms, and the story they were working on was the anxiety, the reaction of uh, you know Wisconsin soybean farmers who mm-hmm. realized that wow this this is this is actually happening, and this could really affect their livelihood. Okay, I want to just move on to, to one other thing. Now, Michael, you have a, a fascinating story in the Weekly Standard coming up um, about uh, Trump's behind-the-scenes anti-immigration uh, email campaign, which, of course, also then dovetails into uh, one of the you know, week's big stories. I mean, think in the last seven days what's happened on the immigration issue. 
where you know the pre- the president went off on on Easter Sunday, uh, talking about the caravans, uh, talking about the need to uh, uh, you know send the military down to the border. We're going to send some National Guard troops, uh, killing the DACA deal, all of that. Um, the this White House has really been stoking the fires of this particular story. So tell me a little bit about, you know, give, give us a little bit of a preview of what you're going to be reporting. Sure. It's um, so the the I was struck by this, um, seeing a number of emails from a, a member of the White House communication staff whose job is essentially to reach out to uh, friendly radio hosts, um, news reporters, um, uh, TV producers, uh, bloggers, you know, really anybody who they think um, can sort of help them get their message across. This is nothing new for politics, and not, certainly not for White Houses, to sort of have uh, what they call surrogates, people who can kind of help them get their message across. And, you know, for over a year, the, the White House, or for a good chunk of the, the first year of the Trump administration, the White House was sending out emails about and uh, from this particular office about everything from tax reform to Obamacare to sort of national security issues. Um, It was sort of just trying to get their talking points out. And then something changed. It started about November and then it really kind of ramped up in January, I noticed, where every single email sent out to kind of the general surrogate list, that's kind of everybody who might be a surrogate, was about immigration. Um, and they were kind of sexed up headlines, you know, that some of them might, you know, were, were these actually kind of dry press releases from the Department of Homeland Security about kind of an ongoing uh, uh, ongoing project uh, to, to, to get uh, gang members who were illegal immigrants, wrapped, uh, you know, uh, arrested. Um, and then they would be sort of sexed up into this kind of um, most sensationalist interpretation of that. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're designed to grab you by the lapel. That's right. That's right. And crisis at our southern border. M- MS-13 is taking over the school. One teen warned before she was killed. Criminal aliens set free by sanctuary cities. Right. So this is stuff like I would normally see, you know, in certain aspects of my Twitter feed. That's right. Or, this, this is coming out of the White House. Yeah. So it was being sent by by the by the by the White House out. And what I discovered was um, a, a couple of things. One, you talk to people who are sort of political communications professionals and they sort of point out that oh, this isn't really a great use of this tool. You know, I mean, there are some been some issues over the past, say, two months. Um other than immigration that the White House might want to have its surrogates ready to talk about, say, the omnibus spending bill that a lot of conservatives were very upset about the president signing. You know, there were no talking points for for how, you know, a talk radio host in Des Moines, Iowa might be able to say, well, you know, but the White House had to make a decision. It wasn't a great decision. The Congress sent them a terrible bill. No, nothing of that. It was. It's all been about immigration. So my question, which I think remains a question, I didn't quite get all the answers from the White House that I wanted, was why are they doing this? Who's directing this? And I found as well, and you'll have to read the piece to see, that there. what ends up happening is a sort of a feedback loop where the sort of sensationalism of uh, what what the White House is sending out gets kind of filtered through conservative media. And then, of course, right back to the president who tweets things out. Uh, and you can even see that there's a great example of this happening over a 48-hour period with one particular story that was kind of overhyped. So um, well, I think it's... Back, yeah, yeah, this goes back to what we said before, though. This is, this is the id right now as opposed to talking about the omnibus spending bill or talking about the right. details of tax reform. Right? Well, I, I think that observation, yeah. though, about the feedback loop is, is very insightful. And uh, the, the sad thing is I think it's been a problem on the right for a very long time, long before Trump came along. You know, there's always been a certain percentage of, you know, base voters on the right or whatever that equate outrage, um, you know, with some sort of like success or movement on an issue. And, you know, this White House is sort of, you know, 
taken that you know war nuclear um, right and and direct right because it, because right. The, the president ultimately has a an outlet uh, through Twitter that other that certainly no past president has had or has used uh, as effectively as he has but I, but I, what I will say about immigration um, is I, I don't know I mean this is sort of an intuitive observation but I've worked at the letters to the editor page at two different sizable <laughs> daily newspapers and there are no two issues other than guns and immigration mm-hmm. that move people like those two things do right. and uh, immigration particular i mean you know i you know i don't know maybe they have some like you know crazy cambridge analytica study or whatever in front of them <laughs> that shows them that like you know pounding this day after day is going to result in uh, um, all kinds of political gains for them um but you know well, it got I, him elected president so Certainly, yeah. yes <laughs> this is not an outlier that's right and 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 perhaps and i i think i point this out in the piece that um we talked about sort of how difficult it can be, and I talk to people at the White House who say this, how difficult it can be to kind of follow where the president is going to go. Well, one place you definitely know where he's going to uh, be consistent on and you know where he stands on is immigration. So maybe as a communication strategy, this is just sort of a survival tactic uh, to kind of make sure, well, I know why I'm, what I'm sending out uh, is not going to be undercut uh, or, or changed by a president who can can be a little mercurial sometimes. Well, and this, this is also the, the, the adage, you know, keep playing the hits. You know it works before. You know, you, you keep going back to it. Okay, Mark, we have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, I know that you were tweeting about this. Everybody's tweeting about this. It's almost obligatory. Right. Uh, the decision by the Atlantic to fire Kevin Williamson. Um, your your reaction, your thoughts. I, I mean, I, I don't know what I can say that has already been – hasn't been said a million times over. It is incredibly cowardly and hypocritical. Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic, has a giant Charlie Hebdo poster in his office. Do you think Jeffrey Goldberg at this point in time is a man that is standing up for, you know, free expression and the ability to say things that are, um, you know, impolitic without, you know, consequence? Um, you know, I don't know what to say. On one hand, I don't want to beat up on him too much because, you know, maybe Steve Jobs' widow or whoever's funding The Atlantic these days came to him and said, you simply can't do this. Um, but the way that the press release and everything was framed, you know, as if, you know, Kevin's position on abortion here wasn't, you know, far more nuanced than it was, you know, certainly being presented. You know, yes, it's true that Kevin likes to be a provocateur. And yes, he even, you know, out and out trolls people on some of these issues. But the fact of the matter is, is Kevin is a boy, is, is a man who was adopted as a child. You know, he's born shortly before Roe. And he feels extremely strong about the, the you know, consequences of legalized abortion. And it it is just appalling to me that your mainstream position can be um, you know, abortion right up until the, you know, it was perfectly legal under all circumstances right up until the point of birth. And that is totally acceptable in every mainstream publication in America. But to say that people that, you know, um, um, you know, support and encourage, you know, the, the, the barbaric, you know, practice of ab- aborting hundreds of thousands of predominantly female and minority children in this country, um, you know, then there should be consequences for that. Um, that that is an untenable position in in, in America's mainstream publications. It, it's well, hanging, really revealing the women. No, no I got to admit, I'm really confused about this because I, I I went and I did listen to the podcast where he's talking with uh, with Charlie Cook about this, and they do talk about you know whether there should be a death penalty and whether there should be hanging women. Then. I watched, um, and I would strongly urge people to go and, and look at the the comments he made at Hillsdale College back in 2015, where he also addressed this and seemed to regard this as a total distortion of his opinion. Um, appeared to take a much more thoughtful approach. So, uh, I guess uh, at, at this point, I'm 
I'm a little bit vague on his, you know, his his position on it, whether or not just in that podcast they were sort of noodling around on the issue and playing with the idea. Because at Hillsdale, he seemed to say this was a very, very unfair and and malicious attack on him. So this is nothing new. Well, it, it, it's it's and it's like as Mark said, he can he he has a tendency, and that sort of it's almost part of his brand to be uh, very provocative about making sort of a broader point. It should be noted that basically every mainstream pro-lifer um, views women, uh, and this is, I guess, the initial uh, uh, thing that Kevin said, was um, actually views women who have abortions as victims and not not yeah. necessarily people who should be uh, punished for, for, a, for a crime. So in that way, Kevin is out of the mainstream. But uh, to me, Charlie, this all goes back to, I think, really bad practices for uh for 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 running a, a, a any kind of enterprise particularly a, a magazine of free expression of ideas which is um these sort of things are out there um jeff goldberg was hiring kevin williamson to be a provocative writer to share his provocative opinions um it seems that it would be um it, it would it would require due diligence to sort of make sure you knew who you were getting when you were hiring them but to hire him for for the express purpose of being provocative, then to essentially cave into a mob um, uh, who said well, this is he goes too far on this that issue that we really care about, and then essentially go back on your decision. I think it just reflects really poorly on 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 his decision making, and um, it, I, I I would it, particularly in this world where writers put themselves out there. Um, a lot of it is based on the idea that our editors are going to back us up, even and even especially when uh, it's difficult. I, I just think this is sort yeah. of a, a bad a bad sign for journalism um, writ large to sort of well, even take out the, the the ideological problems. With well, it. but the underlying issue here, I think, is one of extreme hypocrisy. I mean, the Atlantic's marquee writer Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a book where he said that the firefighters rushing into the buildings on nine eleven were basically inhuman actors of a racist state that want to do violence to him okay that book where he said that won a national book award okay right. um and i for the life of me cannot f- see how that is less provocative um or more outside you know beyond the pale than anything that kevin williamson has said and the idea that one would face consequences for his rhetoric and the other would not is purely a matter of personal well, yeah. politics and, and well and i would prefer that nobody face consequences or, or nobody face the consequences completely of, agree yeah, i right. just think that there should be a level playing field with this people people writers especially should be able to say provocative things you know um you know that advance the conversation obviously we draw lines here but clearly the lines are not being drawn in the same places for the left and the right yeah right. I, th- I think that's a fair point and, and lines have, been, have been written you know drawn in the past uh, national review got rid of ann coulter they got rid of uh, john derbyshire i mean there are there are lines but you know, you also need to put this in the larger context of of kind of of the intolerance, uh, the the reaction to when the New York Times, uh, uh, you know, hired Brett Stevens, the campaign to get rid of him, you know, Barry Weiss. There is this this notion that that conservatism itself is so badly tainted is the original sin uh, that everyone is guilty. And I tweeted out that I know that if the Atlantic had had the bad judgment to hire me, that there would also be a campaign, uh, you know, to get rid of me because I've taken this position or said this sort of thing. So, you know, again, if you wonder why we are are so tribal and why conservative writers and thinkers and journalists are so reluctant to go outside of you know con, you know the conservative media, it's because they are vulnerable to this kind of double standard. They, they are vulnerable to this kind of pressure because you know 
that it's unlikely that Stephen Hayes is going to fire either one of you for taking a strong pro-life position. But once you go outside to publications like this, you don't know what the environment's going to be. Well, actually, you do. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on this Friday. I hope you have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again.